Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. Today, how the most powerful financial institution in the land is now threatened with its very existence. How decades of denial could lead to the demise of the AMP. Great to have your company for this latest episode of the Money Minutes. And today I want to take you through the decades-old decline of the AMP, which, for more than 170 years, has been a powerhouse, a cornerstone of the financial fabric of this country. Now, this is a story I've covered myself through the decades, from the time of its apparent unassailable power to today, when its once-all-powerful life insurance business has been sold, and its own incoming chair says she can't rule out that the whole business could be up for sale. And though the latest travails of the AMP, including the ill-advised promotion of a man who'd faced serious sexual misconduct allegations and the subsequent resignation of another chairman, this one, David Murray, ex-chairman of the Future Fund, might seem like final nails in the AMP's coffin. The truth is that the AMP's core problems go back decades. And one real problem might be that the company, its managers, its staff, its agents, never ever truly believed they were fallible. Shortly, I'll speak with Australia's leading independent actuary, Michael Rice, who himself has decades-long experience with the AMP, including starting working there almost 40 years ago. And you might understand that feeling of infallibility, especially when you listen to some of the messages that have come from the AMP itself through its advertising over the years. Brian and June weren't big investors, but they knew where to turn for the best advice. Their AMP agent showed them a wide choice of investment options to make the most of their money. AMP will always be there. Will always be there? Maybe. But only with a new attitude in today's financial services world, where the real powerhouses are the industry superannuation funds that can determine the ethical compass and the board powers of Australia's largest companies. Just look at the just resignations of three key executives from Rio Tinto in the past week, including Jean-Sebastien Jacques, the chief executive, over the blowing up of the highly sensitive Aboriginal sites, the Yukon Gorged Caves last week. That was all about pressure from those industry superannuation funds that have challenged the AMP. So too, you could argue, was the resignation of the AMP's own chairman, David Murray, and others beside. Once that power sat with the AMP, that could ask just about anyone to represent it in their ads. Listen to this, with my intros to the celebrities involved. I look forward to the nursing home. Clive James. Captive audience. Kathy Freeman. I look forward to taking my shoes off. Rachel Griffiths. I look forward to seeing my mum. Ian Thorpe. I look forward to the day that Kylie takes over the world. I look forward Dame to the Edna day Everage. when the world leaders think like a Melbourne housewife. AMP, advice, investments, banking, superannuation, insurance and optimism. For many, the real problems at the AMP might have started with the Financial Services Royal Commission, where the company was revealed not only to have knowingly charged customers but delivered no services, but also questions were raised about whether the board and executive willingly misled the corporate regulator ASIC I should note that most of those investigations against former Chair Catherine Brenner and former CEO Craig Meller and its former Chief Legal Counsel have been dropped, yet still investigations against the whole institution by the corporate cop remain underway. So here's just a little of a report I did a year or so ago for Nine News. 
The bottom line tells the true story of Hurt at the proud historic financial institution. AMP's full year profit collapsed by $820 million to $20 million, a 97% drop. The drop includes $430 million repaid to customers who were charged fees but received no advice. Well, clearly charging clients for a service that is not provided is unacceptable. The shareholders have paid a price with a cut to their dividend. The share price is down of the order of 10%. Chances are the share price will fall further. I want to bring into this conversation about AMP a man who really has lived it for all of his working life. And that is Australia's leading independent actuary, Michael Rice from Rice Warner. The reason why Michael is so instrumental in this, he's not only given advice to the AMP over his career, also even for a short period worked for the AMP, but also has given advice to what has seemed to be the other side of this conversation, that is the industry superannuation funds. He's also given advice to government about creating policy about Australia's retirement incomes policy. He joins me now. Michael, many thanks for your time. Hi, Ross. So in the beginning of your career, or my career, to have imagined that AMP, which was the fifth financial pillar of Australia, along with our big four banks, to imagine that it might be no more after more than 170 years of history was almost unthinkable. It's unthinkable that it could come to this, that AMP could potentially be no more. That's right. In fact, it's worse than that, because if you recall... Keating wouldn't let the six pillars merge, which included National Mutual. And then in the 2000s, AMP bought National Mutual, then renamed AXA. So with AMP in demise, it's taken down almost uh, all the market share virtually of the life insurance industry of the 1980s. And indeed, if we go through, that decision to try and make that acquisition of National Mutual could be seen to have been one of the nails in the coffin uh, because really, in many ways, uh, they paid way, way too much. It was much bigger than National Mutual. These were the two ultimate you know, bricks of the life insurance industry. But the two of them coming together, to a certain extent, you could almost argue that that was the beginning of the end. Well, it, it doesn't appear that they got the scale economies that you normally get if you merge two very similar businesses. They uh, haven't really grown market share since. And the share price, as you know, is, what, uh, 20% of what it was 20 years ago? Well, just going back through and having a look at this. So let's say, for example, the AMP share price got above $10 back in April 2007. So you go all the way back. It probably before then was at $8.25, $8.57 in 2001, even close to $9 at that stage. Today, sitting at $1.57. So even if you've gone back and bought them, let's say, for example, a close on $9 in 2001, we're talking 19 years later on, and the shares are only $1.57. That's got to be not a good investment. And clearly, something inside that whole business has gone wrong. And I want to go back to the actual day that it was demutualized, because I think that might have been the very day that the Australasian Mutual Providence Society, um, which you know was founded, as I say, more than 170 years ago, as a way for people to get insurance and get some form of a pension when there was no government pension around. I've got a sense that that's the day that its priorities were completely mixed and the future the boards and chief executives had no idea where their priorities should lie. Yes, it might even go back a bit earlier than that, Ross. If you think of the late 80s, 
we we had the the emergence of mandatory superannuation and the growth of industry super funds. That at that time, AMP and National Mutual, plus a couple of the other mutuals like City Mutual, which became Capita and MLC, they had a great agent development war and they started paying higher and higher commissions disguised as development loans for the life agents businesses. And they threw away a lot of money then, which which was really just policyholder reserves. In addition to that, we had the October 87 share market crash. And you would think after a crash like that, the earning rates given to funds on capital guaranteed products, which was the main product of the time, would be quite low. But in 1988, all these mutuals were fighting with each other to pay the highest rate. And it wasn't uncommon for a super fund to get 18%. And of course, all of the industry funds at the time were in capital guaranteed products. So they were all the beneficiaries. And what really happened was that the policyholder reserves were given away to industry fund members. I remember when that only too, came... I remember that only too well because remember that there were such things called insurance bonds in those days. And remember that the returns on those insurance bonds were tax free during the nineteen eighties. And so if they were capital guaranteed and because of the war that you described that was going on, the returns were significantly higher than inflation. So it was the easiest thing in the world to get an after-tax return significantly higher than inflation. So it was almost a no-brainer. But effectively, they were doing this by paying out the reserves of the insurance company, which effectively were the reserves owned by the other policyholders. That's right. And the after the October 87 crash, I think they're... they're declaration of interest rates was based on a smoothing mechanism. So effectively, they were taking the 1986 and 7 great returns, averaging over three years, still paying this tremendous rate. But of course, they weren't earning it. And the mistake they really made was giving it away in so-called single premium wholesale insurance bonds, which are much bigger dollops of money, and without having any termination penalties for people who came in and took advantage of the high rates. Do you remember like that? Uh, funds. Yeah. Do you remember that I was at that stage, around that time, the chairman of the investment committee of what is now the media superannuation fund? It used to be called the journal superannuation fund. Now I can remember that when we turned up there, we had pretty much all of the money in those capital guaranteed insurance bonds, mainly because the return was so high. And as I say, it was just an easy no-brainer for a superannuation fund to hold them. Now, over a period of time, because of a change of policies, you had to get your money out, which we were able to do for very little, almost zero. Um, And it was with AMP, almost zero penalty. And of course, we were able to then put it with other investment managers to to try and really, if you like, try and make better uh, on the investments for uh, for the members. Now, we weren't the only ones. There were plenty of other industry funds. So effectively, the enemy of the big insurance companies, the National Mutual, the AMP, Colonial Mutual, MLC, um, these industry funds that were emerging were really getting a significant transfer of the reserves, which were the, the backbone of those big insurance companies. And as the reserves ran down, these businesses needed more capital. So AMP and National Mutual decided to list and raise capital that way. Then there's another aspect of these businesses, and that was the sales force. Now, the sales force or the old um, insurance uh, salesperson that they had was really almost a, um, a respected member of the community. An AMP salesperson was, you know, it was a great job. 
there was good money, there was a very significant upper middle income lifestyle that could be gained as a result of being a very good AMP agent. But the problem is, and I can remember uh, an article that I wrote in the 1990s with Adele Ferguson about AMP, and, and really at that stage, they tried to change the deal with those agents. Now, maybe those agents did need to come off the most generous deal they had, but the way in which they did it was so ham-fisted, it meant they were suddenly at war with their own agency force, and that again started to really cut apart the whole fabric of what had been the great institution of the AMP. Yes, and I think I think what's happened is times changed and they didn't change their business model. So they still felt that whole of life and endowments with no surrender value in the first two years would still be palatable because people would keep them to maturity. But of course, people became much short-term thinkers and there was the growth of the managed funds, the unit trusts, which offered quite a lot, quite good returns in bull markets, and people started saying, well, why don't you just buy term insurance, put most of your money in these better performing assets? And I think the life companies were slow to respond to that. Because you're quite right. Because you're quite right. It was a situation whereby people did not need to have investments and insurance wrapped up together. You could have investments on one side, have insurance on the other side, knowing that the insurance, you could shop it around and get a cheaper rate. Okay, so take me to December 12, 1996, when uh, the AMP's policyholders are given a bunch of shares uh, in AMP and it becomes listed on the ASX. Now, normally in a mutual society and even an industry super fund, which is very similar to a mutual, um, the, the whole interest of the board, the management, everybody is about the member of that mutual society, right? So because they are all in it together, so as a result, if you make a good return, it's shared amongst those members. But as soon as you add shareholders into the mix who have put their capital in, of course, shareholders have to come first. The board has to create a return for those shareholders. And that's really where all of a sudden the, the priorities of the AMP and I think many other companies became terribly mixed and confused. It's true. And we've got a lot of listed financial services companies today that have this dilemma. IWF is another one. The people argue that if you have a profit motive, you'll be more efficient. So you should be able to make a higher return and and out of that, you can pay the shareholder. But in financial services, that doesn't seem to work very well, does it? No. And that's the problem because there's got to be a very clear set of guidelines as to where is the priority of that board. Is it to make money for the shareholders or is it indeed to try and create value for the members of the organisation. The customers were also the owners of the organisation as a mutual, but all of a sudden the customers were not owners, they were simply customers. And as a result, they were there either to be A, gouged, uh, or B, they were there really to provide the returns for the shareholders. And that's where it became very unclear, I think. Yes, and and times have changed in the last 20 years as well, in the sense that life agents have, have morphed into financial advisors, charging fees rather than commissions, and acting in the interests of the client rather than being an agent for the institution. And that's a dramatic change because it means that you can't um, build a a distribution channel and force them to sell your product. And this is the problem all the banks have had as well, right? They they have, and and many of them have been pinged by ASIC on things like fees for no service because they haven't, or they've taken a while to realise 
that if you act in the interests of clients and you follow the best interest duty, you've got to actually find products that are the most suitable for your client and not just um, passively put them with the organisation that's paying your bills. And while business is being lost to the industry superannuation funds, because many people realised, of course, they were getting better value, more transparent products inside the industry super funds than they were inside these big life insurance companies, there was a series of acquisitions that took place that again raised questions about the uh, the competency of the board and indeed the chief executives that it had. So there was number one, George Trumbull, an American who took over um, GIO in 1999. Then moving forward, there was another acquisition that was made, which was Pearl Assurance based in the United Kingdom, which ultimately would cost um, a chief executive, Paul Batchelor, his job, mainly because it had breached its regulatory capital requirements in 2002. So there was a series of events and a series of mistakes that were made along the way that really ultimately has led to not just the culture that's taken place and been identified in the Royal Commission, but also from the shareholders' point of view, the significant loss in value and of shareholders' funds. And then there was the sale of Henderson, the fund manager that actually grew significantly after it was unbundled from AMP. It's so true. All right. So I think, then... the, I think the real problem, Ross, is that when you're fully bundled, where you're selling a customer all of your products through a tire distribution system, then as long as the outside world is doing the same, then being the biggest and having a strong brand. I mean, remember in Queensland and New South Wales, there was an AMP agent in every country town. In Victoria, it was probably a national mutual agent. But these were respected uh, financial institutions, as were the people who sold their product. Once you unbundle, you've got to have an alternative uh, business plan because the old one doesn't work. And I think the problem the new management has is that no one's done anything for 20 years. So They've still got all these legacy computer systems. They, they, they had all these different products, many of them that were not a contemporary, not open for new business. They've had uh, deals with their advisors, you know, the buyer of last resort that will buy your business back at a minimum price, which, it, which was usually above the market price. And now they have a class action against them from some of their advisors. But all these things tell me that they've had 20 years where people have not reacted properly to changing time. Now, is it because the banks were the same that no one noticed? But surely you can't have a whole segment of the industry that ignores the future financial advice legislation, the introduction of my super products without commission, and not change your whole business model to cope with the new laws. And isn't it interesting that 170 years ago, 171 years ago to be precise, the Australian Mutual Providence Society was created for the mutual benefit of its members. But the real problem here, as we're describing, is as time moved forward, the AMP did not change its own business model for the benefit of the members, mainly because it was a listed business, but secondly, because it seemed to want to try and fight a rearguard action against the industry funds as distinct from creating some sort of model that was similar to what the industry funds were, were doing. It's true. Now, to be fair, the last two years, I think that they finally realised they had to do something. They had to, though, didn't they? Because the government 
and ASIC instituted the new, you know, sort of um, uh, future of financial advice, which meant A, commissions had to be gone, so you couldn't keep paying the salespeople the commissions they previously were on, and secondly, you had to show just cause in terms of putting the uh, the interests of that investor first. You did, and, and one of their difficulties is that they run a platform to provide advisors with uh, business support and recommended products. But to make sure the advisors do complete their best interest duties, you have, you have to have a range of products on that menu. And in, in, in some areas, like life insurance, AMP started finding that other life companies were selling more business through AMP advisors than they were. And I think that was part of the catalyst for selling out of life insurance completely. So go back to the 1980s, and AMP and National Mutual probably had 90% of all the life insurance business in Australia. They merge, and then they get out of it, stop selling it. I, I think there are some positive signs, Ross. I think, uh, you know, I read the other day they've They've got down to one trustee board. They've got 11 master trusts down to two. They've started converting them. And they're still a very big company, you know, what, 170 billion of assets. I think the challenge now, though, is having wasted 20 years, can the current management, which has been there for two years, quickly turn it around or will it run out of time first? $170 billion worth of assets, but the stock market has only got it valued at $5.4 billion. And now what yes. you've got is the question of time. With David Murray, the chairman, going, uh, with the scandal that they've just had over uh, the sexual misconduct of one of their senior executives, uh, Bo Pahari, who's now had to go back to a previous job as distinct from taking over the prize jewel of the AMP, which is running AMP Capital, and now a new chair who's come into the uh, into the business who effectively has said, well, it's all up for sale. We're, we're going to look at any option. It really is a situation where it seems that after so many scandals, after the revelations of the Royal Commission, which I must admit the senior executives, Craig Meller, plus also Catherine Brenner, the chair at the time, uh, were facing investigations by ASIC, which they've been now exonerated and cleared of over the past few days. But the fact is it almost seems though the current board management have put their hands up and said, look, we're not sure we know how to run this anymore. So if somebody wants to take it off our hands at the highest price, maybe we'll let them. Part of that could be that there are still some jewels there and they're starting to get unsolicited offers, which makes it difficult for a board not to look at them. I'm sure their their priority would be to hold it all together. But uh, some parts of it, like the advice dealer groups, you, you know, can you make money out of financial advice? In a way, you're dealing with a group of small business people who um, are only going to pay you a fair price for those services. Uh, to my knowledge, no dealer group actually that's financially owned, uh, sorry, institutionally owned, actually makes money. You, know, you would have seen how Westpac and CBA virtually gave theirs away. So as a distribution-led business, AMP needs to convert into a customer-led business. And that's quite a big change, isn't it? It sure is, because the old days of that AMP salesperson effectively driving the business into the AMP, and it could make its money in all sorts of other ways in terms of maybe, um, you know, sort of the property deals it was doing, um, in terms of its asset management side. It could make money and slice and dice it in so many different ways, so long as the money continued to come through the door. But one of the real fundamental problems for the AMP now is that that money, uh, with very big 
premiums attached to it has basically stopped coming. And this is where, as you say, there is no plan B. There is no other business model. They've been desperately searching for one, but there is no line whereby there's going to be the ongoing flow of assets coming through the door. Well, the, the irony is that by unbundling, they've got some businesses that are doing very well. So, for example, they've got Super Concepts, which is, I think, the third biggest um, administrator and supplier of services to SMSFs, self-managed super funds. They've got the North investment platform, which is growing while others are shrinking. They've certainly got a lot of corporate super, and they've retained a lot of good clients, even despite all the bad publicity. But each of these businesses... Uh, like the bank and the fund manager, they're standalone businesses. There's no the, the extent of cross-selling and uh, benefits of being part of a big organisation are not there as they used to be. So it is actually a lot easier to break up today, isn't it? Much easier. And who could imagine? Uh, founded in 1849, um, I must admit that uh, I have actually been down to the foundation stone of the AMP and you go and look at it and go and see where Thomas Sutcliffe Mort stands on the statue and says we are here for the welfare and the well-being of our customers and it really is quite a an astonishing thing to imagine that today such an institution so large and here for such a long time could very well be changing right before our very eyes. It could, and one can only hope that out of all this, they either do get a strategy and buy themselves time, or that they break it up and that all of the customers in each of the divisions uh, go to a place with a brand that's not being tarnished daily. It's interesting to watch. I'll tell you what, always good to have a chat to you. It is such an interesting story about one of Australia's most venerated institutions, the AMP. Michael Rice is with Rice Warner and Australia's leading independent actuary. Michael, always good to chat. Thanks, Ross. So that's it for today's episode. Please leave us your feedback via social media, Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And please share the Money Minutes with friends or colleagues. It's your support that helps us keep doing it. This has been a Talent Corp production. I'm Ross Greenwood and these are the Money Minutes.